Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week we're looking back at an episode that was first released in January of 2011, and it does have a couple examples where we feel like what counts most is that the storyteller truly meant no harm. David Crabb, who is white and who does a lot of character work in his career, he does an impression of a black woman that he used to work with and for whom he felt a lot of affection and appreciation. Michael Herstreet, reflecting on being called a pussy in high school, although today he might have steered clear of including that word in his account, on account of its misogynistic associations. As I've said before, we do edit these things out of old episodes now wherever we can, but those two examples I just gave are perfect examples of me making the editorial decision of resisting going too far with re-editing things. And so, without further ado, here from January of 2011 is the episode called Frontiers. Howdy, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Peter Bain doing the music up top, and this is a song by Stalio or St. Alio. I don't know. And perhaps I never will. The theme of today's episode is Frontiers. First time I did this, first time I did that. And it just so happens that all the storytellers today are men. So I promise from the bottom of my belly, the ladyfied episode of frontier type behavior is just down the road, folks. Our first story comes from the fabulous David Crabb. And this is actually a recording of David at the show that he co-hosts called Ask Me Stories at uh, the club called Arlo and Esme on East 1st Street. Here's David with a story that could only be called N.A. Can't touch this. My first job uh, was as a dishwasher at the Holiday Inn in Seguin, Texas. <laughs> the hotel was at the juncture of two major highways, so basically... It was all truckers. It was just truckers. And my job was a dishwasher and room service. The room service part was basically it was like bringing disgusting food to the most out of shape, haggard, exhausted 
disgusting men you've ever seen in your life. These were rough customers. Um, and the thing that was so strange to me is how many of them were just naked? Hey, just naked. And it wasn't queer. Like, it wasn't like a gay thing or they were like, eh, eh, They were just like, you know, I'm not in my truck. I don't care if you see my dick, just give me my ham sandwich. That was the attitude I got. There was no come hither, no flirtation, just like, yep, I'm naked. Um, <clears throat> when I wasn't doing room service and I was washing dishes in the Hobart machine, uh, the kitchen boss, his name was Dee Dee, and Dee Dee was this very portly uh, black woman who was totally suspicious of me at first. She just did not like me, gave me the evil eye all the time. She was either in two states, hysterical laughter or maniacal fury, and there was no in between, and sometimes it would happen like that. One thing that she always said to me was, I would be doing something, and she'd say, get your N.A. over here. I'd say, what? My, my, my what? Your N.A. And I didn't know what it meant, and I was afraid to ask, but for like the first few weeks I worked there, always, get your N.A. to work. Get your N.A. over here. Move your N.A.'s in my way. I left it alone. <laughs> she was also constantly obsessed with my laziness, and... Because the job was actually pretty easy. There was a lot of time when there were no dishes to wash and no room service. I would just be hanging out with the cook, shooting the shit. And she would see me and she would just say, she said the same thing to me every time. She said, I'm not your mammy. She loved saying that to me. And I was like, I never said you were, Dee Dee. <laughs> but over time, I sort of, you know, I edged my way in. I tried to warm the cockles of her cold heart. And she... She eventually, like, I made her laugh sometimes, but even that was like a blessing and a curse because laughter always led to some sort of symptomatic pain of a condition she supposedly had. So making her laugh went like this. <laughs> oh, oh, my back! Get your N.A. out of here! And it was like, God, no more knock-knock jokes for you, Dee Dee. <laughs> So, one time I was at work, and she says, uh, Hey, you know how to cook? And I said, yeah. She said, get your N.A. over here. <laughs> so I went around the corner. And she was standing on a step stool over like an industrial, I swear to God, it was like a 30-gallon metal pot. And she was on the step stool just to be at the rim, like looking down at me, stirring, sweating. <laughs> and she said, get up here. So she gave me this like cartoon-sized spoon. And I... I went to the top of the thing and I looked down. It was basically just molten lava hot water with carrots, sliced carrots in it, you know, cooking. Um, so she said, stir this till I get back. And I did, and she was gone for 45 minutes. I, I blacked out, but I stood up. I was, like, I was like, oh my God. She finally comes back and she's like, what you doing up there? And I said, well, you said to stir. She said, I said stir sporadically. <laughs> You didn't have to be up there the whole time. Get your N.A. down. She was pissed off about that. So one day she's yelling at me, and she's yelling about something. She's talking about my N.A., and I was really tired. And I was like, Dee Dee, stop. I need to understand what my N.A. is before you say it to me anymore. What's your N.A.? Your N.A. is your narrow ass. Your narrow white ass. And I always thought it was a shame that she left out the white because I thought it would have been so awesome to be constantly judged for your whiteness by having someone refer to your NWA. <laughs> so I had been working there for months and one time she comes up to me. She says, hey, 
you know how to clean? I was like, yeah, I know how to clean. And I had never cleaned anything in my life. I was like a very messy kid with a mother who cleaned everything. And she said, I want you to go in that closet and get a bucket and a mop and get some cleaning solution and make these floors clean. They're too greasy. I said, okay. So I went in the closet and I got this giant bucket, one of those giant buckets with the drawing of a baby upside down in it, you know, like, don't let your baby around this bucket. Um, and I looked on the wall and I saw 409 floor solution. I was like, well, 409, that gets everything clean, but I really need to impress Dee Dee. I really need to get that floor clean. And then I saw what my mom uses to make everything clean, bleach. And I was like, well, this, these two things together are surely going to clean this place up. So I kneeled, I kneeled over the bucket. I had them in each hand and I poured. And then it was black, it was just black. I don't know what happened. I woke up with this really weird pain in my back because I had been dragged through the parking lot from the hotel. <laughs> Calling the holiday in a hotel, it was a motel. I woke up, there were truckers in various states of undress all in the parking lot. There was three police cars, an ambulance, various families like in towels, like looking confused. It turns out that I created a noxious cloud of gas. <laughs> that expanded in the kitchen. I, I passed out. They had to evacuate that wing of the Holiday Inn. People driving on the highway apparently called from their big ass 1993 cell phones to be like, there is poison in the air on like Route 10. I was politely edged out of that job. They wouldn't fire me because of a lawsuit or whatever, I'm sure. But anyway, I found out after the fact that Dee Dee actually fought for my N.A. to stay, um, which I never, I know, right? She liked me. But um, actually, Dee Dee, if you're here or if you're listening to the podcast, please email me a JPEG. I'd love to see you again, too. Um, thank you guys very much. Jersey, I was a late bloomer, or a little pussy, as they used to call me in school. I sounded like a really energetic 12-year-old girl probably until I was 15 years old. I was like, would you guys want to go to the mall? 
you know, and it's hard picking up girls when you sound like Mickey Mouse, you know. <laughs> and so in high school, I had to take geology for my science, which is the study of rocks. And it was the most boring thing to me. And I just don't think that any kid should be forced to sit through something like that. We were going around and introducing ourselves in the first day of class to the teacher. And it's going pretty smoothly. And then this kid goes, hi, my name's Bo, but you could call me Whisper. And totally freaked the teacher out. And I was so inspired that when I got around to my turn, I said, hi, I'm Windbucket. I'm Whisper's mama. And I just knew that Bo and I were going to be best friends, and we were. And he introduced me to, like, Led Zeppelin and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Weed. And he also introduced me to his girlfriend, Cassie. When I met Cassie, I just knew something was different about this person. I was definitely still a kid, and this was somebody who was blossoming into this, you know, really cool lady. She was just like Bo. I mean, she listened to Zeppelin, she smoked weed. She was kind of a hippie, so she, a lot of times she didn't wear a bra, and um, sometimes she wore shirts that were pretty see-through, so that was really fun for a (laughs) 15-year-old. I was kind of religious when I started hanging out with them, and they kind of immediately took that away. I said, this, what we're doing here is a sin, but it doesn't feel like a sin. And Bo would be like, oh yeah, dude, that's because God's not real. And it was so brash, and I couldn't imagine saying something like that to my mom. But they were really brave about it, and that really had a big effect on me. We ended up having study hall together in the library every day. We started writing poetry together. And for me, I had pretty much only gotten to first base with a girl at that time, and sharing rhyming couplets was like fellatio to me. She was so much better than me, and she was so much more talented than I was, but she still told me how great of a person she thought I was and how much of a ladies' man I was going to be when I grew up. I was just in awe of her, and I was really jealous of Bo. One day, Bo took me aside, and he was like, dude, you know that girl, Jen? And I was like, yeah, yeah, she's kind of chubby. And he's like, yeah, 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 her and I, man. I totally fucked her the other day. And uh, I kind of like it, and I kind of like her. What about Cassie? This is, what's going on? And he's like, oh, no, no, dude, I didn't tell you, but her and I, we kind of, like, drifted apart, and, like, we're not really going out anymore. I was kind of blown away by that. And he was like, but, dude, listen, don't, don't tell her that I told you any of this shit, because, like, she's pretty sensitive about it, I think, so it might really hurt her feelings. So I kept everything that Bo told me a secret for a long time. You know, he's my best friend. I kept hanging out with Cassie, and I just kept falling deeper in love with her until a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I went to bed one night, and I was like, well, tomorrow's going to be the day that I do it. You know, tomorrow's going to be the day that I finally stop being the little pussy that everyone's been calling me, and I'm going to tell her. You know, we're meant to be together. We hang out every day, and I was going to spill my guts to her. And the next day came, and I was so nervous. I just kept repeating to myself, like, don't pee your pants. Don't pee your pants, because this might be an actual possibility. And I sat down next to her, and I just couldn't do anything. I just was locked on her. I just stared at her. (laughs) And she started to get really freaked out. She's like, what's up with you today? And I was like, nothing. (laughs) 
I kind of backed out of it for a moment in my head. I kept coming up with all these excuses and then something just like kicked me in the ass and I was like, you know what, fuck it, you know? I'm never gonna have this opportunity again. I barely got up the guts to say something this time and just gonna, I'm just gonna do it. So I took a deep breath and I said, Cassie, listen. As soon as I started speaking, I felt this pounding in the back of my head. And it, it just totally took me over. I was like, oh my God, I must be really, really nervous about this. But it just got worse and worse and more intense. And I just put my head down on the desk and it just consumed my whole body. Cassie was asking me what was wrong, but I just was so consumed with this, I couldn't even respond to her. And the pain got so bad that I just flew out of my chair, just stumbling toward the librarian's desk, and I asked her to, to call 911. And the librarian could not believe that there was anything wrong with me, that she would have to call 911. So she was like, just go to the bathroom. I was so out of it at this point, I just looked at her and I just screamed like, fine, bitch. And I would have never said that to anyone in the school. My mother would have been appalled. I just had no idea what was going on. And uh, I stumbled out into the bathroom and I'm so off balance and so out of it that I slip in the bathroom stall and smack the back of my head on a toilet paper dispenser. And the pain that I thought was the worst pain I ever felt in my life just got even more intense. Uh, and to the point where like my whole face was just red and it was just pulsating. And um, I can't throw up because my neck is paralyzed. So I can't lurch over to throw up even though I was so unbelievably nauseous. I stumble back into the library and I just scream out, that was a terrible idea. And I just started vomiting profusely all over the place. And eventually the librarian called 911, finally. And after about half an hour, an ambulance showed up and it was like I was in an alternate universe at this point. These so-called paramedics came out and they were these little old women. And they took forever to get me out of the school and into the ambulance. And they needed one of the cops to help them put me into the ambulance because they didn't have the arm strength at that point. So I finally get to the hospital. They do a CAT scan on me. This doctor comes up to me. He's this Italian, good-looking surgeon that apparently everyone in the hospital called God because he was so amazing. And he told me that I had a rare brain disorder called arteriovenous malformation that I was born with. And that, although he had a very divine refutation, he wasn't going to be able to cure me of that. But... I had a brain hemorrhage, a small vessel in my brain had exploded. But luckily, the blood went into the water spaces of the brain, so I was going to be okay. And Cassie, she came and visited me in the hospital, and she was totally shaken up by it. She sat down and she read me Howl the whole way through. It really was kind of amazing. And when I finally got out, something changed with her. Because we had experienced something that wasn't high school, it wasn't an ordinary thing. We experienced something profound. We ended up having a, a romance after that uh, that I'll never forget. It only lasted two weeks, but <laughs> it was amazing. People say you know, they, their high school years and their teenage years are crazy. And I just think, when I was 15, I loved a girl so much that my brain exploded. I don't think anyone can really beat that.
angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who lounged hungry and lonesome through Houston seeking jazz or sex or soup, who copulated ecstatic and insatiate with a bottle of beer, a sweetheart, a package of cigarettes, a candle, and fell off the bed, who wept at the romance of the streets with their push carts full of onions and bad music, and rose reincarnate in the ghostly clothes of jazz, in the gold horn shadow of the band. Oh, skinny legions, run outside. Oh, starry spangled chalk of mercy, the eternal war is here. This is Risk. After David Crabb told us the story, N.A., he gave us the song, N.A. And after that, we heard this amazing young guy, Michael Herstreet, an actor and a quite a storyteller. We call Michael's story Blow Up. And after that, some words from the great one himself. One of the patron saints of Risk Takers, Mr. Allen Ginsberg. That was a collage, a uh, juxtaposition of various lines from Howell, and he was backed by Hugo Droopy Contini. And this behind me now is Offranda Musicale by Bafalao. No, 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 Bacalao. Bacalao, not Bafalao. <laughs> Now here's a little treat, a very short story by one of the funniest people on earth, Mr. Patton Oswalt. This is from his album, My Weakness is Strong, and he calls it First. I turned 40 this year. I've had so many, like, I've hit, like, a lot of weird, um... I guess firsts now that I've turned 40. And here's the saddest one. I was in a restaurant in New York and I'm having lunch and I get up and uh, I go to use the restroom. And when I walk inside, I look down into the toilet and someone has committed a brown crime. It was horrible. They did not call in the CSI team to clean it up. And I'm just standing there going, what the is wrong with people? This is awful. Then I go to flush the toilet. Up, oh, toilet's broken! And then I wasn't mad. I'm like, oh, someone came in here, did what they did, and the toilet didn't flush, and they ran out. They were embarrassed. I'd do the same thing. <laughs> so I just pop out, I grab a waiter, and I go, hey, look, I'm not angry, I'm not trying to be gross or mean, but your bathroom's really messed up, and you should get someone to fix it, because other people might be, like, offended. They said, oh, we'll get right on it. I went, thank you. I sat down. Uh, ten minutes goes by, I get back up, go into the restroom, that same waiter grabs me, and then I'm turning to go in, and that's when he goes, hey, um, I, gotta t I just gotta tell you, man, um, that was so cool, the way you told me. You know, like, you were polite, you weren't mean, that was just really cool, I just wanted to let you know that. And I went, oh, okay, and then I went in the bathroom, and that's when it hit me, I've been alive for 40 years, that's the first 
that's really cool I've ever gotten in my life. That's the first one. And I spent my life trying to be cool, try to dress cool, try to dance at parties, try to hit on women, all of them vagina-drying moments of failure. And the one, my one James Bond moment so far in my life has been beastly, sorry to interrupt you. It seems your toilet is choked with poop. too long ago, I was out with a friend seeing a show, and we went out to a bar afterwards and had several drinks, and we sort of stumbled out and decided to share a cab home, because we both live on the Upper West Side. And we get in the cab, and we're sitting there, and my friend says to the driver, we're going to make two stops, one on the Upper West Side and one in West Harlem. The cab driver's in the front seat. He smells like cigarettes, and he's got sort of a thick Middle Eastern accent, and he's blaring the Middle Eastern music loud on the radio. And we're sitting in the cab, and it's moving along, and my friend gets really quiet, and he looks over at me, and he says, Hey, Greg, do you want a blowjob? And I was completely shocked because we were just friends. We'd never had any kind of romantic design on each other at all. And I found myself saying, what? Here? In a taxi cab? That is completely inappropriate. While I was saying that, I had already unbuttoned and unzipped my pants. So my friend leans down in the seat and he starts to go down on me. And... I'm sitting there in the cab, and I can't believe this is happening. He's doing a great job. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, wow, this has never, ever happened to me before. I can't believe I'm having sex in the back of a New York City taxi cab. This is a first. And he's doing his thing down there, and I'm nervous because I'm looking at the driver, and I'm hoping that he just keeps his eyes on the road. But then right then, my friend says, yeah, do it. Give it to me. You like that? You like that? And right then, the driver sort of stops, and he sort of turns his head slightly, and he says, hey... What are you guys doing back there? And my friend stops and sort of lifts up his head and he says, Nothing. We're just talking. Of course, because that's what people say to each other when they're just talking in the back of a cab. Yeah, give it to me. So we keep going along the ride and he's still blowing me and I still can't believe this is happening. And then suddenly... 
I'm lost in it for a while. And then he says to me, Greg, listen, you have to hurry up. We are only four blocks from my house. So then I get really nervous and suddenly I freeze up and I think I can't really work under this kind of pressure. I don't know if it's going to happen. Four blocks and we're careening up Broadway and we're turning onto a street in the high hundreds. And I know we're getting close just as I'm getting close. And I somehow make it happen and it all works out in the end. The cab pulls up to his house and pulls over to the curb and my friend gets out of the cab and then he leans in through the window and he has uh, some money and he says, Greg, here's some cash for my half of the ride. And I look at the meter and at this point it's only about 15 bucks. But as the cab starts to roll away, I look down on my hands and I have a hundred dollars. And I think to myself, oh my God, what, what just happened? Did I just accidentally become a prostitute without even knowing it? It's like everything was normal before and now I've been paid for sex. It just happened just like that in the middle of New York City. I didn't know it would be so easy. And... I'm sitting there and I feel really, really strange, you know? I mean, you think it's going to be this sexy, amazing thing like they tell you on Sex in the City. Public sex outside, sex in the back of a cab, super exciting. But what they don't tell you about is the part after your friend gets out and you're riding home alone. You just mostly feel like a sad whore. And I'm in the back seat with the money in my hand, and I feel really awful because I'm sure now that the cab driver knows what we were doing. So I try to play it off, and I, and I say to him, kind of an intense winter we've been having, right? And he goes, yeah, 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 sure, whatever, whatever. And he keeps driving, and I just get really nervous, and I'm not sure what to do. And we ride up just a couple more blocks, and we end up at my house, and the cab driver gets out of the front seat and comes around the back to help me out, and I'm still kind of awkwardly pulling things together. And I'm just sure that he knows what's gone on. So I don't know what to do when I get out of the cab, and I look at the cab driver, and I say, thanks. And I decide to pay it forward, and I hand him a hundred bucks. Well, I'm not gay, neither am I, technically. But if I had to make love to a man, it would be this guy <laughs> I'm not talking about a one-nighter No, no, no And I'm not talking about prison No, oh, oh. I mean if things turned out just right Just right A certain circumstance had arisen 
Pour him blow. His girlfriend left him. Oh, oh, she was cheating. What a bitch. I called Murray up for an emergency meeting. Uh -huh. That's when he called me up, cause I'm his good friend. He said, Murray, can you bring all of the sadness to an end? Oh, 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 oh. And it started with a glass of Zinfandel, and I felt my fingers tingle. We looked outside as it began to sprinkle. Make it sprinkle, Johnny. <laughs> Just when I thought that nothing could ease the pain. Whoa, 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 whoa. I broke out two flute glasses and we drank mimosas in the rain. Mimosas in the rain. Not from concentrate, never. It's orange juice and champagne. Mimosas. And we were sitting on a pier looking out over the Pacific. We talked about my relationship and I got specific. Yeah, it's a sweet friend. He said, Thanks for being here. I said, Stucky, I'll always be around. We had five more mimosas and I woke up with my pants down. Not good. And I thought I had. Gone insane in the membrane. Oh, but we didn't do it, didn't do it in vain. What did you do? I was hammered. You had our flip cam. You had our flip cam out. <laughs> did it after drinking in mimosas in the rain. Mimosas in the rain. With a little bit of pulp now. It's orange juice and champagne. Just a little. It's okay, it's alright, we were gay for just a night And it's alright, it's okay, we were gay for just a day And we went back to being best friends, we'll let that night remain Good friends <laughs> And I will never ride another man again Somebody get this guy one Mimosas in the rain Mimosas in the rain Oh, so freshly squeezed It's orange juice and champagne Mimosas in the rain And it rained two days ago A lot going on on this episode, folks. Uh, the Patton Oswalt track came from his album, My Weakness is Strong. You can get that at PattonOswalt.com. After that, we heard something from Frontal Risotto. I, I'm not going to pronounce the name of the song, but it, uh, it, uh, it was the Blue Danube laughed. After that, we had the beloved New York storyteller, Greg Wallach, with a story we call... The Accidental Prostitute. After that, singer-songwriters Stucky and Murray with Mimosas in the Rain. That's off of their album, Stucky and Murray. Sing the songs of Stucky and Murray. This is Michael Eingorn behind me now with a song called Popcorn. And our final storyteller today is the amazing comedian Al Madrigal out at our show in L.A. This is called The Druggus. I sold uh, 
I sold acid in college, uh, and uh, never really admitted that to anybody before. Uh, so this is a huge risk. I was hoping to really bury that and um, never talk about that again. But uh, the opportunity presented itself, and uh, I jumped on it. I needed the money. Uh, you can buy 100 tabs of acid for $100 and then sell those uh, tab, each tab for 5 bucks, $3 to friends. Uh, and um, <laughs> make some decent money and so turn those around pretty quick anyway it just fucking it happened I was in college with uh, a really wealthy roommate at the time uh, who had a cleaning lady and the thing my thing with drugs is I really want to like them more than I actually do because I sold the acid I didn't take a lot of the acid uh, I took a little bit uh, of the acid um, and I pretty much tried everything but I really want to try it more I want to like it more than I it's like uh, Taco Bell uh, or um, improv uh, and uh, like you have some good experiences and then you're just trying to chase that uh, same you know thing for the rest. so anyway um, have this uh, roommate who has a cleaning lady in, we're sophomores in college and he's got a fucking cleaning lady and I think he was from uh, Wisconsin and uh, a lot of dairy money. And uh, just fucking oaf uh, that uh, I lived with. And he had just drugs everywhere. And so um, the cleaning lady comes over. Her name was Leonisa. And uh, we called her Liam Neeson. <laughs> we have the maintenance guy for, it's just me at home. And the rich girlfriend, you know, like every druggy guy has this druggy girlfriend that's just around, like this Roseanne Arquette fucking, yeah, just fucking watching TV and eating cereal and just there constantly. Uh, so uh, it's me and her. And um, the super, who's named Mario, uh, and wears overalls, I swear to God. Uh, and... Uh, he comes up and he goes, hey, you're cleaning lady. She's in the bath, in the, the laundry room acting crazy, man. Uh, and we go, okay, what's happening? I guess she was squinting in the uh, laundry room and laughing hysterically. Liam Neeson is freaking out in the laundry room. Uh, so we go down there and I go, oh, okay, I'll help out. And, you know, it's like, you get to check it out. And we go down there and uh, I go, hey, how you doing? Are you okay? What's happening? She goes, I, I feel so weird. Uh, she, she goes, I don't have anything to eat. I just eat the chocolates. Oh, fuck. Um, my roommate had a bowl, a bowl of mushroom-infused chocolates wrapped up like kisses on his fucking dresser. She didn't eat anything. I'd only take one. Uh, she had two of these fucking things and was just, well, I mean, yeah, uh, she was going nuts. Uh, and she's in the laundry room trying to do fucking laundry, just freaking out. And it's like a 60-year-old Latina woman uh, has never done drugs and is super fucking religious, is just wasted on fucking mushrooms. Uh, and holy fuck, I'm going to jail. We're all going to jail. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. So we bring her upstairs. And then the, my roommate's girlfriend's like, you should go dancing. <laughs> and 
like, it's a sunny day, you should go dancing. And I'm way, I mean, I was way nicer than my nickname in college is Smiling Al. And I was probably the fucking nicest guy. So I didn't say anything. Right now I'm doing, shut the fuck up. There's no fucking dancing. Uh, and like, it's three o'clock on a fucking Monday. And we got a six-year-old Latina woman fucking on mushrooms, tripping her balls off in our fucking living room. Shut the fuck up. Uh, that's what I should have said. I was like, no, there'll be no dancing. Uh, that's, <laughs> I can't. Take care of her. Let's figure this out. Uh, we're going to go to fucking jail uh, if we don't do this right. And so uh, I had to explain to her what was happening to her. She did not know what was happening. She was just losing it, laughing hysterically. She started to cry for a little bit. Uh, it was really fucking weird. Um, so my Spanish, she's like, you talk to her. My Spanish is horrible. Anybody who knows anything about me is like, I'm half Mexican. Uh, people are constantly looking for me to speak Spanish. My Spanish is just terrible. But I can say uh, that chocolates is drogas. Uh, and so I go, the chocolates is drogas. The chocolates is drogas? Si. The chocolates is drogas. No, I don't do the drogas. Never do the drugs. She starts, she gets it and starts freaking out. Oh my God, I'm on the drugs. I'm on the drugs. <laughs> she then says, right, the, but the best part of all of this is she goes, on Sunday, I was reading the Bible to the children. And now I'm on the drugs. <laughs> That's how it happens. Um, one minute you're a lawyer working successfully in a firm, and then the next minute, fucking crackhead. Uh, it's just fucking, that's how. Yeah, she's on the druggist. Uh, and so then the, um, the Rosanna, I forget her name, I'm sorry, it was a long, long time ago, I'm very old. And she says, uh, she goes, let's get her a beer. Uh, and we didn't have any beer for some reason. And so she had access, and this is what I also, we got her as a referral from other people that lived in our building. She had access to the other apartments. And so now I've got a lady with keys on fucking mushrooms that wants to go. She decided, okay, let's get some beer. Uh, and now she's ready to fucking party. And uh, <laughs> she just... Really quick, too, if you think about it. Just Sunday school, Bible, children, talking, reading the Bible, mushrooms, let's go get some beers, uh, and just immediately. Uh, so now we're in other people's apartments uh, with, I mean, just weird shit, too, because we didn't live, it was, uh, it was a mix, it was a nicer place, and it was a mix between college students and, like, just regular people. So we're in these fucking people's apartments and looking for beers, and they're gone at work. Uh, and so I'm not sure if you've ever gone and looked at uh, real estate uh, when people still have their shit. And it's just weird. And, like, somebody has an excessive amount of dolls uh, on a bed, and they're like, oh, let's get the fuck out of here. Uh, it's just I don't like other people's shit. Uh, I barely like going to every, like, a dinner party. And anyway, so we're in there. We get a couple beers uh, from I don't know where. And then we go, and she's drinking a beer. But now I've got to get her out of there. That's my whole thing is let's not get arrested. Let's send her on her fucking way. Her daughter's coming to pick her up in two hours. She has a hair appointment with the pastor, uh, pastor's wife. It has a hair salon. It's like a like Tyler Perry movie. Uh, all over. It's like the pastor's wife has a hair salon. And she's got to go there. And she's like, she's going to know I'm on the drugs. Uh, and uh, 
we ended up, uh, she had some beer. We watched TV, and then we watched some Oprah uh, with her. Uh, just sort of Oprah calmed her down. And uh, the shitty Roseanne Archek chick was sort of fucking trying to give her a massage. Uh, and then um, we put her, I, I explained to the daughter, I said, look, this is what happened. Her daughter sort of got it. And then we just sent her on her way. And uh, she never came back. Uh, I, don't, I don't blame her. I wanted to leave as well. Uh, and then uh, years later, just to wrap it up, uh, it's uh, five years later, I think, um, I found some of the acid I used to sell in <laughs> my freezer. Uh, the same college roommates had come over, and we all got together to like this five-year reunion thing. And um, I said, hey, I still got some of that acid. You remember when I used to sell acid? And they're like, oh, yeah, we remember. And um, we took some of the acid. And I used to, if everybody saw up in the air, I used to fire people. Um, and I was a, a, a job counselor. I used to get people jobs as well. Uh, as part of like this family business I was in. And uh, I had to give us, we took the acid at 11 o'clock at night. And I forgot about the fact that I was speaking to a high school class the next morning at 8 o'clock. Uh, I was a graduating seniors from South San Francisco High School. Um, and talking about job preparation and shit like that. And so walked in there on the fucking acid still and uh, gave this speech to graduating seniors about preparing themselves for uh, the real world. And uh, I think it went pretty fucking well. Uh, no puppet heads. Uh, but I was thinking that all of this might make a good story uh, someday and uh, probably one that I'll never tell again. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much. That's it. I hate the way they make me feel Like I've lost all control And my arms feel stuck And my chest gets warm Don't want to worry, I've been caught In an emotional trap can release myself Don't want your breath down my back I want a war on hugs Not drugs I hate hugs I want a war on hugs On hugs, not drugs That's right I hate This is Risk. After Al Madrigal, we heard musician John Cruteau, who is a fan of the show. He did a song called Hugs Not Drugs. This is the Bruce Ariz... Arizabagala... Balaga. Balaga. The Bruce... <laughs> the Bruce Arizabalaga Quintet. How is that? This was Risk... I'm Kevin Allison. Till next time. 
Today's the day. Take a risk.